Uh, let me let me pray for us, and we're going to read this passage and talk about it. Father, thanks for this night. Thanks for all the folks that are here, new faces and old. Um, we have a singular need, and um, we need to hear good news. We need to hear good news. And so I pray that the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me look at this passage and read it for us from Romans chapter 8, um, beginning in verse 18. We've been looking at the book of Romans all semester. It's actually a letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome. It was full of uh, um, Greeks who had become Christians and then also Jewish people that had fled Jerusalem and Judea to Rome, and they had become Christians. And so it's a mixed bag, it's a mixed audience, and Paul's writing to them about something that is uh, honestly my least favorite topic ever. We'll talk about it. For I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is God's word. Um, Drake, I'm going to ask you to kind of try to follow along there, but we'll see. Okay, uh, I admit it, this is not my favorite passage in the Bible at all. In fact, it's one of my least favorite. And um, which is kind of a weird thing to say because chapter 8 in Romans is my favorite book of the whole Bible. But this passage, these uh, 10, 12 verses in here are, are my least favorite because they're all about suffering. And I hate to suffer. I hate it. I love comfort and I hate discomfort. I love flourishing and I hate suffering. Um, I heard a stat the other day that was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Um, it said that the fastest growing uh, segment in apparel, like clothing and apparel, in all of uh, America is sports and clothing, like sports and fitness uh, stuff. So like Lululemon, Athleta, Gap Body, Lucy, Under Armour, Nike, um, all that stuff. Right? Um, That stuff is the fastest growing segment. This year, in the U.S. alone, we are projected to spend $100 billion on that stuff. That's a lot of money. I don't care who you are. Uh, That is insane. What is also very interesting alongside that stat is this, that Americans are not projected to exercise any more this year than we did last year. We love comfort. 
I like yoga pants. You like yoga pants. I like dry fit shirts. You like dry fit. We love stretchy stuff that's comfortable. We love looking like we care about our bodies, but we don't want to do the hard work of caring for our bodies. Uh, We like the appearance of athleticism, but what it takes to be a real athlete and kind of give ourselves that. We don't love that. Um, We love comfort, and we hate to suffer in whatever form that takes. And in in this passage tonight, Paul is bringing the issue of suffering right to the forefront. In fact, he began it last week, and I didn't put it in here, but I'll I'll remind us what it said. In in verse 16 and 17 of Romans, he says this, that the the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And so it's like this awesome passage that if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into God's family, and and you are going to have an amazing inheritance one day. And we're like, yes, that's awesome. And the very next thing that Paul says is this, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. She's like, man, Paul, why did you have to say that? Like, we love the, the idea of being adopted into God's family and being a child of God. Man, just keep talking about that, Paul, or, or talk about puppies, or like talk about anything else awesome, but don't talk about suffering. But that's exactly what he does. Paul, why did you have to talk about suffering? And the truth is, it, it's because Paul needs to tell us the truth. And the truth is this, if you want to be with Jesus, if you want to be made like Jesus, then you have to suffer with Jesus. And there's just no getting around that in the Bible. That if you want your life, if you want to end up where Jesus ends up, and if you want to become a kinder, more loving, gentle, more patient, generous person like Jesus was, then you will necessarily suffer. You have to. And Paul goes after that right here. So what is it about this suffering that he talks about? Two things. First, it's universal. Second is that there is hope in the midst of it. So the first thing there, um, universal, the universality of suffering. So before I just jump in and talk about how it's universal, let me kind of give us a few biblical categories for suffering because it's not an... It's not obvious what that means. So the first one is this, is a specific suffering because you're following Jesus. There's a specific suffering for those who follow Jesus in this world. Jesus said this in John 15, 18. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. That there is this certain suffering that comes when you're identifying with Jesus and you're kind of giving yourself to the life that he lived and trying to follow him, then you will suffer. You will be hated in this world. Uh, if, you want to, if you want a life that feels like yoga pants and basketball shorts, then do not follow Jesus. I'm just telling you that. I, you can't avoid it. If you want comfort, do not follow Jesus. Don't try and live for the kingdom of God because it will be hard and you will be uncomfortable. You won't know how to act in certain situations. You, don't know, you won't know what to say in certain conversations. Uh, you won't know, um, you'll have to remain completely silent in other times. You'll have to walk out of 
that, uh, that dorm room or that apartment room or the fraternity or sorority house when certain things start happening, whether with a guy or with a girl or the whole group. Like if you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be uncomfortable. And you will suffer for it. And that suffering may be more outward in its orientation or it may be more inward. It's going to look lots of different ways. If you're going to follow Jesus, it, it may mean that uh, you won't be able to afford the country club membership because you're given 10% of your money every single month to the church. And so all of your friends, are, are they're going to play golf three times a week, and they're spending their Saturdays out there. In the summer, the wives are spending all every day out there with their kids. And, and it means that you may not be able to do that if you're trying to follow Jesus. It may mean that you're at a, a fundraiser for your kids a few weeks ago, like uh, somebody I know was, and, and you're like kind of going around the room meeting people. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, oh, I'm a pastor. And um, someone may look at you and say, ooh, don't say that. <laughs> say you're a chaplain. It doesn't sound as rough. It's like, oh, I guess I'm a chaplain. You know, like, okay, I guess, yeah, I guess it's not that awesome that I'm a pastor. Okay. If you're a Christian in college, even at TU, even in the middle of the Bible Belt, at a place that's fairly kind of uh, socially conservative in some ways, and, and it's not just like liberalism being screamed down your throat as it is at some other places, like even at TU, for you to follow Jesus and, and to try and live in a way that honors God is going to cost you. It's going to be painful, sometimes if not a lot of the time. So there's a specific suffering for if you're following Jesus. There's also a general suffering because all of us live in a fallen world. And so this is true for Christians and people who wouldn't call themselves Christians. This is true for everyone that, that we live in a world that is messed up, it's broken, the Bible calls it fallen, that, that there is an, an aura of sin that is at work in this world and it affects all of us. And it means that there is sickness, and there are natural disasters, and there is divorce, and there is real evil, and there is real war, and there, are, there is lots of real political fallout, and there, is lots, there are lots of things, injustices, and other uh, isms that are at work in this world, which they just kind of universally are awful. And then there's this third kind of suffering, which... It is my least favorite of all of them. And it's suffering by those who follow Jesus. Suffering at the hands of people who are professing to be Christians. And I, again, I hate this one and it's confusing. It's the one I want to avoid. But the reality is that Christians hurt people. And I talked about this a few weeks ago. One of the reasons for this is, is that, believe it or not, Christians are not. It doesn't make any of us perfect people. It means that we will still say and do and act in ways that are contrary to who God calls us to be. So that may mean that I say something to you which is actually very hurtful. It's happened with some of you in here, and I've had to apologize to you, and, and you've been kind to forgive me. But it really does mean that, that Christians will hurt one another. And we may do and say things, we may put stuff on social media that, that is not okay. Um, 
Christians can be some of the most self-righteous people ever. And self-righteousness, when you are on the receiving end of someone who is self-righteous, it hurts. And so, um, Paul is addressing this church in Rome and is saying, you're going to suffer both because you live in a fallen world and because some of you are following Jesus in this world, um, and maybe in that third way as well, we don't really know, but Christians living in this world are going to suffer. And he calls it groaning. Look right there in the passage and he says that we too, we are groaning in this world. And I love that. I love the way that that, the image that paints, that it's just, you know, sometimes when you hurt in such a way that there really just aren't words for it, it's just like, ugh. Paul says that that is what it's like to be a Christian in this world. You know, suffering isn't unique to Christians. I'm not trying to say that Christians have the corner market on suffering. That is not true. But he's saying you will be targeted in some ways, and it will be applicable to you in some ways that aren't for others. But there's this really interesting thing that happens in this passage. Paul doesn't just talk about Christian suffering. It's actually not even the main thrust of this passage. He looks up and says this, that the creation itself is suffering. Have you ever thought about that? That the world, like literally the physical world, the trees and the green grass and the rocks and the bright stars and the atmosphere and all the stuff that comprises the world, it is suffering. And I don't really know how to talk about this, but I'm going to try. Like, In some ways that means that and the phrase he uses is that it was subjected to futility. That it's not able to do the thing that it was created to do. So the trees are in all their beauty in the middle of the fall, the maple trees that line to you. They're, they're red and they're yellow and they're orange. And it's like, I spit, um, it's, uh, it's like they're supposed to be even better than that. That there's a dimension to their reality and their color and their vibrancy that we don't even know yet. We can't even experience because it's not been unlocked. It's that the the grass that we see in all of its beauty and the flowers, they're going to be better than that. They were supposed to be better than that. It's as if you have this this really high-powered sports car and it's been governed at 100. And you can only go 100, but it was meant to go 190. It's like Adele when she she had, um, her vocal cords were messed up and she couldn't sing. And it's just like, get well because we need you. Like, your voice, we have to have it because it's amazing. It was meant to bring forth this glory and this beauty. And Paul is saying that the creation itself is meant for that. And it's not doing the thing that it was meant to do. Why? Look right there in the passage. It says, because of Him who subjected it. God made it that way. Why would God do that? Well, back in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God... God, he told them, if you do this, 
It's going to have huge implications. Things are going to die. You're going to die. The world is going to come unraveled is the picture he gives. And so he starts cursing things. He curses Satan. He turns to Eve and curses Eve and Adam and says, you're going to suffer. And he turns to the ground and he says, cursed is the ground because of you. That this world right now, the physical creation, all of its beauty and majesty and everything is under a curse. It is suffering. Paul says that it waits with an eager longing, which the picture in that phrase in Greek is this picture of someone standing on tiptoes, looking in, waiting for like, are we there yet? Are we there? When is it going to happen? When I was in uh, when I was in high school, me and two friends uh, skipped school, like good old fashioned. Parents think we're at school. We left, and we drove to Tulsa. That was three hours away, and um, I don't recommend it. But uh, we skipped school, drove up here because the PGA Championship was happening at Southern Hills, just down the street on Lewis, and we were going to do that one day. So they had gotten tickets. I came along for the ride. We show up, and it is pouring rain, pouring. The tournament got canceled that day. And so... We had made this long drive and skipped school, probably going to get in trouble. Might as well make it worth it. So we went to the hotel where the players were staying, and we kind of waited for them to arrive at the hotel so we could get autographs and kind of make the most of it. Well, um, this happened to be when Tiger Woods, it was the first year that he had turned professional. Some of you all, it means something. For some of you, it doesn't. If it means nothing to you, it means everything to someone who's a golfer. And he, he was everything. And so we're back at the hotel, and we're waiting for people to come in. There's big throngs of people um, trying to get in, get autographs. But I was smart, believe it or not. And um, I went over and stood by the elevator. And after they left the throngs of people, I was just getting on the elevator with these people. So, yeah, me and Greg Norman riding the elevator together, no big deal. Me and Vijay Singh, me and Tom Lehman, who won that tournament. I mean, just one after another, I am making laps with these people. And I'm getting balls and gloves from them. It was incredible. Well, um, at one point, I knew that Tiger Woods had walked in the building when everybody... Just the mass of everyone who was in the hotel just whoosh into the lobby. And because I had been over here doing the elevator thing, I was way on the outside. (laughs) And I was on my tiptoes looking. I just wanted to see him. Just Just to get a taste of him. That sounds weird. (laughs) Paul's saying that the creation is on tiptoes, waiting for God to fully redeem His people. He's, it's waiting for our full adoption as sons and daughters because it can finally scream out in beauty. The world is finally going to work like it was intended to work. But right now, it's suffering. He also talks about this suffering like labor and childbirth. And it's... Pregnancy and childbirth is long, and it's awful, trust me. Not even awful for me, believe it or not. It's awful for my wife. Um, it's painful. She always gets sick, and, um, right? and then labor itself is just a whole ordeal. And, yeah. and, um, but like, it's hard, and it's painful, and it's, and it's brutal. And epidurals are amazing. Drugs are amazing because they come in and help with the pain. 
And so Paul said that, look, suffering is like childbirth. It's awful and it's painful. And so the question that I kind of want to ask us is, so what are we using for the epidural? Because we're all trying to do something with the pain that we have through suffering. What is it that you're using to try and numb that pain? We use lots of different things. Some of you, um, some of you actually use politics. As weird as that may sound, some of you take great comfort in seeing certain people get elected because you tie your hope to that. And you think, well, if, if finally that person got elected or this Supreme Court thing's going to happen or whatever it is that you kind of tied your hope to, you kind of say, ah, the groaning subsides for a little bit and there's a sigh of relief. Uh, for others of you, the thing that you look to to help with the pain is um, you make yourself busy, like really busy, Sometimes you do that by doing lots of good things and you try to justify it by like, no, I, I'm really busy, but I'm going to like seven Bible studies and, and I'm uh, having all these quiet times and I'm doing this mission trip with RUF on spring break. and Like it's all really good stuff. And, and we try to like numb the, the, the real issues and the pains and the suffering of our life by just being so busy that we never have time to think about ourselves and the ways that we're really hurting and the ways that we're really suffering. We just think if I can minimize it, then that's that I'm dealing with it. Uh, others of us try and dull the pain through um, through avoiding Jesus. So you may actually be a Christian, but you you very much kind of use him when it's convenient, like when the social surrounding acknowledges that and, and says, "Oh, that's cool." But when it doesn't, you're like, "Oh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, like go to church sometimes and." Um, Good RUF on occasion. But like you really try to distance yourself because you don't want to suffer. And you're trying to deal with the pain through stepping out of it. Um, but here's the thing about that. That none of those things are lasting. If you tell people and you tell Jesus like, yeah, I'm just not that, that into him. Look, when you meet him, he's going to say, eh, it's funny, I'm not that into you. Um... If the way you're trying to deal with your pain is through politics, guess what? They're going to get replaced. If the way that you're trying to deal with your pain is through being busy, how's that working? It's not because I meet with you. (laughs) You're exhausted. You're miserable. You want to die right now. The suffering's real. The pain is real. Christians suffer, people suffer. So what do we do? Paul says we can have hope in the midst of it. He's not making any illusions. The suffering does not go away right now. In fact, he says it's here to stay. But he says there's hope to be had in the midst of it. Look at the passage again. Um, the, The New Testament concept of hope is not... The same kind of hope where, where you say, like, I've got an 8 a.m. tomorrow. I really hope I get up. And you know, as you're, like, going to bed at 3 a.m. and not setting your alarm. <laughs> it's not just like a pie-in-the-sky hope or I hope my kids don't wake me up at 6 in the morning. They're going to do it whether or not I hope or not. It's not a wishful thinking. In the Bible, a biblical view of hope is a, a present certainty of a future reality. It's a present certainty of a future reality. 
So when Paul is sitting here for six times in these uh, verses right here, he's saying, hope, 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 we can have hope. He's saying, we're not just like throwing our hands on and be like, well, I really hope that happens and I wish that it were true. I probably know it's not though. He said, the Christian hope is certain. But if you are in Christ, your better days are before you. They are not right now. Your best days are not behind you. They weren't like the good version of you in high school. Your best days aren't even going to be next week or next year. Your best days are one day, someday when you die and are with Jesus or when he comes back if it's before that. That is the hope, is that one day suffering is going to end and you will be with him forever. So right there, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is that glory? Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. Look, right now we get glimpses of that hope in, in, in small pieces. Right? Sometimes we get it when we're worshiping and there's a song that really connects with us. Sometimes we get it at church and in taking the Lord's Supper. And it's just we're reminded that Jesus really did die for us and he really does love us. Sometimes we're with other people and we realize, man, this, this fellowship that I have with these other Christians is really sweet. So we get it in like bits and pieces. And the Bible's not even saying that one day you're going to get it in HD. It's saying one day it's going to be, you're going to touch it. It's not just that you're going to see Jesus like on TV and it's going to be really clear. Like, you are going to hug him. And in that day, your hope will be realized. It will be present. It will be a reality for you. I have a friend named Tim who used to do RUF at Furman. How many of y'all have heard of Furman? Some of you, I hadn't during college, probably because I went to OU and didn't care about anything else. But um, it's a small private school in Greenville, South Carolina. And um, he talks about hope in this way. Hope that helps us suffer is this. Hope means that Christians don't just zoom in and focus on our suffering. So here's what he's saying. If there is a reality of glory one day when things are going to be right, then hope allows us to do something more than just like, Say, talk about how bad it sucks that we're suffering. Hope allows us to do something in the midst of that suffering because we know it's going to be temporary. And he talked about these different things. He said, if one day there's going to be perfect justice in this world, God is going to make all the bad things untrue. And he's going to make all the bad things be right and good. He said, if that's going to be true one day, then we can actually start entering into that and trying to make that true today. So that means you can spend your time finding a cause that you care about and trying to turn back death and suffering in that area. He says that if one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is good and that he is Lord, then maybe you can actually start talking to people around you about how Jesus is good and how having him as Lord is freeing for you and how it has changed your life. He says if one day all, um, all races will lock arms around the throne of God and worship Him, maybe we can begin working on that today. In repenting of the racism in our hearts or, or repenting of it and trying to uh, heal it around us and enter into the healing there. He says if one day there's going to be a right use of food and alcohol and entertainment, then maybe... Like maybe today we can begin to, um, to do food and alcohol differently than we once did, right? And so 
Um, one day we'll recognize that the suffering is over and Jesus is actually the good king. And if that's true, then maybe we can exhale because our person didn't get elected. If one day Jesus is going to fully show himself to be the good king, then maybe we can exhale when our person didn't get elected. He's going to make things right. So Christians are a people with hope, so we don't have to focus on our suffering, but nor, secondly, do we have to fear the suffering. Verse 18, I consider that the, present, uh, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. What he's saying is this. One day, if you're a Christian and you are suffering in this world, one day you're going to wake up and this will have felt like a bad dream. You know, you, know, you know that feeling? Of course you do. You just you wake up and your body's like convulsing. And you're so happy that it's not real. I mean, it's, it's so relieving. I had a bad dream last night. I forgot about it until just now. And I woke up and I was very, very, very thankful that it wasn't true. It wasn't in political. Um, uh, Paul's like saying... The sufferings of right now, when you put them in perspective, like in relief of what's coming, this is going to be terrible in comparison. Even if this is okay sometimes, by comparison, this is going to feel like a bad dream. The full realized hope is coming. The Bible says that suffering and glory, though, are inseparable. If you want the glory, you have to suffer. It's like training for a marathon. If you want to finish the marathon, you're going to have to run, like, not two and three miles. You're going to have to run 18s and 22s and a lot of that stuff. You're going to have to suffer. It's going to hurt. It's going to be terrible. But guess what? I've heard that running a marathon and finishing is one of the most exhilarating things in the world. If you want the glory, you have to suffer. All of you are at TU. If you want the glory of getting a diploma from this place... You have to suffer. It's called tests and papers and lots of homework sets and going to teachers' office hours. If you didn't want to go to office hours, you should have gone to OU. I never talked to a professor for four years. It was amazing. Um, but, hey, TU is different. This degree is worth a little more, so they say. Um, you have to suffer if you want the glory. Uh, a friend named, uh, not a friend, a guy named Ray, he actually spoke at summer conference last year. You may remember him. He was talking about, um, I, I'm closing with this. He was talking about going to uh, Machu Picchu with, I think, maybe he has one or two sons. There were several of them that went. And um, a few of us actually went to Peru uh, several years ago um, on spring break and worked with an orphanage there. And the orphanage just happened to be like two hours from Machu Picchu. So we did that a day. And it was amazing. And Machu Picchu, as you probably know, sits in the top of these mountains, and it's just, there aren't words for it. It's amazing. Um, and Ray was talking about uh, how to get there. Well, we got there by a series of buses and trains. Like, got off the bus, onto a train, onto another bus, and then we're like, at Machu Picchu. We step out of the bus and we're there. It was pretty easy. But the other way you get there is how? The Inca Trail. And the Inca Trail is not like buses and trains. It is 60-something miles of up and down. Machu Picchu sits at about eight to 9,000 feet. Inca Trail goes up and down up to 13,800 feet 
and then down a valley and back up again to like 12,000 feet and down four or five times. And so Ray was talking about this, and he said, you know, like you get to the top of these huge summits, and you're excited because you're at the top of a summit, but you're looking down like <laughs> where you're about to be tomorrow and then realize you get to go back up again the next day. He said, so it's kind of encouraging but also really discouraging because you can see where you're going. You see the hill that Machu Picchu is on, but, but you also see the valleys and the ascents that are coming. Friends, that is, that's what the Christian life is like. It's suffering on the way to glory. That there are peaks and valleys. There are real struggles. And there are real glimpses of what's coming. And and it keeps you going. The glory is there. It is real. The suffering is there and it is real too. The thing that keeps us going in the midst of that is the certain hope that our reality is fixed. Our future is fixed. And this means two things. God cares about your suffering. He cares about it. He's with you in it. All the big things and the little things, the way you not having friends, you not getting the fraternity or sorority that you wanted, He cares about that. He really does. He cares about your parents' sickness. He cares about the fact that you lost your aunt last year. He cares about the fact that you lost your mom. He cares about your suffering. It means He's with you in it. And that means that you can suffer with hope. So look, if you're, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I'm not going to do Houdini and try to make you become a Christian. Right now. I just want to, I want this to be an invitation to you. For you to consider, what are you putting your hope in? Like, what keeps you going? Because you're suffering also, absolutely. What are you looking forward to? Is it a job? Is it a new set of friends? Is it a new place? Is it um, making a bunch of money? What is it? And is that thing going to be able to carry the weight of your soul? Can it deliver on its promise? Jesus can. And I don't know if that other thing can. It's an invitation to Jesus tonight. Let's, let's pray together.